Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a discussion with Sarah Madavo. Sarah's a litigation partner in Foley's New York office, and you may be driven just a little bit crazy during this show because you will frequently hear me say, oh my gosh, Sarah, me too, because there's a number of things that Sarah and I have in common. But we start off our conversation with Sarah reflecting on growing up in Potomac, Maryland. In particular, she talks a bit about her high school experience, and she mentioned that she went to Sidwell Friends. For those of you who are familiar with the school, we don't get into this on the show, but yes, that is the same school that Sasha and Malia Obama attended. But Sarah reflects on attending Sidwell Friends. She talks about why it is that she decided to go to Emory University for college. She then talks quite a bit about the time she had between college and law school working for Teach for America, teaching elementary school students. She then walks us through her thought process to attend law school, which I love because she does show that for most of us, you know, it's not necessarily the most robust thought process, but don't you worry, it worked out for Sarah and that she ended up attending Harvard University for law school. She talks about adjusting to law school. She reflects on that time and then she shares how it is that she learned about Foley and Lardner at a Black Law Student Association job fair. This conversation is one that I consider to be a masterclass. I find that to be true for most of the episodes of this show, but in particular, the advice that Sarah gives on the importance of building relationships as a summer associate, the importance of being coachable as an attorney and being open to constructive feedback, welcoming it and valuing it as the kindness that it is, is tremendous advice. And I also love the advice Sarah gives at the end of this about the importance of being true to yourself. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with having you give your professional introduction. Thanks, Alexis. My name is Sarah Madavo, and I am a litigator in the New York office of Foley and Lardner. I am a complex commercial litigator, and our clients come to me when they have an issue that needs to be handled here in New York, whether it's an investigation or it's a state court matter or a federal court matter. Whatever it is, I can really jump right in and give them the assistance that they need. Thank you so much for that. And we're not going to bury the lead here. You are a few days in to being a brand new partner at Foley, and we will talk about that and your journey to that. But first, we'll start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, right outside D.C., and my mom still lives there now, so I go back often. So what was childhood like? Like, give me a snapshot if I found you. I don't know if it's elementary school or middle school, but tell me more about little Sarah Madavo. <laughs> <laughs> Little Sarah Madavo. That's a good question. Which I know that's, you've been married, so that probably wasn't even your name, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sarah Madavo is my birth name. I have adopted my husband's name in personal life, but in my office life, I'm still Sarah Madavo and will forever be. You know what? I have to tell you, it's a pain to get certain things changed. Like I remember having, like my law license had to get changed a decade ago. So I respect that decision, but I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it was a lot of work and it's also a lot of work to remember which 
Sarah I am at a certain time. Like, am I Sarah Jean-Jacques or am I Sarah Madavo? What's the activity? What's the day? Let's see. (laughs) But growing up, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad traveled a lot for work. So as a stay-at-home mom, she was really helpful in signing us up for lots of activities. So I did the swim team and I did soccer and I did art class and, you know, all the other fun things I wanted to do. If it was 45 minutes away, she was willing to take me. If it was a play date, she was willing to pick me up. I was really, really lucky in that I got to experience a lot of things as a child that I think contributed to kind of my my worldview and my understanding of what I liked to do and wanted to do when I grew up. So at a very young age, were you like, I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up? Is that what happened? Well, yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't know if I'd say that. I think it was always in the back of my mind. My mom, even though she was a stay-at-home mom, she had a law degree. And so she actually studied for the bar while she was pregnant with me. So I like to say that all that stuff was already in there before I studied for the bar which is why I was successful in passing it. But so I kind of had that in the back of my mind as something that I could do because she had done it. And I also grew up around people who had lawyers as parents. And so it seemed like a possibility. I also had a really strong interest in education. So I kind of thought that maybe I would be a teacher for a long time. And actually, after college, ended up doing Teach for America. So I was a teacher for three years before I became a lawyer. This is really funny because I have, so people who listen to the show know that eventually you just learn a lot about me. That's just what happens on this show. But you remind me, so my mother also is a lawyer who never really practiced. And maybe your mom did for a couple of years. I'm not sure. It's just funny you should say that because that's something that I don't think I've shared with our listeners. And but it is interesting when you know that a parent either is a lawyer or was a lawyer, went to law school, it certainly does plant the seed in you that it's a possibility. So I just find that funny and a similarity. So for you, when you were in high school and you're applying to college, what was that process like for you? Was it informed by a decision to either be a teacher or a lawyer or just kind of what were you thinking at that time in your life? Well, I went to a kind of a pretty competitive high school. And so the college application process was I would say, you know, there was definitely a process and there was a lot of counseling. And so where I went to college, I don't think really was about what I wanted to do. It was more about having the experience I wanted to have. Growing up kind of in that competitive environment, everybody kind of thought that they wanted to go to an Ivy League college. And there was that list of schools that everybody went to in the Northeast. And if you didn't go to the Ivy League, then you went to these small liberal arts colleges. And for me, I kind of thought like, maybe I just want to go somewhere different. And so I started looking at schools in the South and in the Midwest, and maybe there were other things that I could do than go to school in the Northeast. And I ended up applying early to Emory and getting in and really enjoying my experience there. That's fantastic. Emory was also where I thought I was going to go to college. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I have reflected on this in the show before, but while applying to college, I felt like I had a support, lot of support and I felt like I knew what was going on. But in retrospect, I didn't, if that makes any sense, because I essentially locked on to Emory. And then everything else that I applied to wasn't really that well thought out because I was like, I'm going to Emory. And I got into Emory, but another school, so I ended up going to American University in DC, but they ended up just being far more competitive in terms of financial aid and it just made more sense. So I ended up going to the school that I literally knew the least about. <laughs> 
And that's just how life works out somehow. So that is funny. And what did you focus on at Emory? What was your major? So I was a sociology and African-American studies major. What was the thought? What did you hope to do with those degrees? I think I still thought about education. I did the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship, which is a fellowship designed for minority students who think that they want to get a PhD to increase the number of minority PhDs. And so, you know, I did independent research and did a lot of reading and writing and thought maybe I would was interested in higher education and getting a PhD. I ended up not going that route and instead, like I said, going to do Teach for America. But I think, you know, my college experience was more shaped by what I was interested in, in the moment. What do I want to learn more about? What do I feel connected to? And I was not one of those students, like, necessarily thinking about next steps as so much as just thinking about having the experience that I wanted in that moment. Yeah, And I think that's how a lot of people are. And it's funny, because just for the purposes of the show, I will ask very like presumptuous leading questions that I'm like, this probably isn't what was happening, but I'll just say it because then the guest is forced to be like, yes or no, not at all. Here was my real thought process. But I love having everyone look back because hindsight is twenty twenty, And I think we were all in different headspaces when we were 18, 19, 20 years old. And I think it's important to share that for the listeners that we we weren't born knowing that we wanted to be attorneys. Although, like you said, maybe you picked up a little bit about the bar exam while you were inside of your mother. But other than that, you know, maybe you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, my husband and I have very different schools of thought on this topic. He is an engineer. And so he got his degree in computer science and it was very practical and he didn't go to grad school and he immediately began his career and has been very successful doing it that way. And I think when he thinks about our boys, he's like, I do not want them going and just doing something that they're going to just do. I want them to have a plan because college is expensive and it's important to know what you want to do next. And in my view, that's just not how I ever thought of it. And I think I still adopt the same view that I had then that college is about an experience. It's about learning how to learn. It's about learning about yourself and about the people around you. And look, it's an expensive experience, but At the same time, if that's what's right for you in that moment and you're not sure about what you want to do, you should follow your gut and go with what works for you. I'm nodding profusely as you're talking. And it's one of those like left brain, right brain things. And I think they're both right. I mean, I probably subscribe more to your viewpoint, Sarah, than your husband's. But I also think there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, know very early on, this is my path. This is what I'm going to do. This is my plan. And that is wonderful. And I think I even was one of those people, but then I left my plan and now I'm a diversity and inclusion professional. (laughs) But I do think for those of us who aren't as certain, it's just validating to hear someone say, it's okay to have no idea what you're doing and just to be in the moment and figure it out as you go along. And Sarah, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, about Teach for America. Why Teach for America? Where did you do Teach for America? And what was that like? Sure. So like I said, I had always been interested in education and actually in high school had done a program that was at that time called Summer Bridge, but is now called Breakthrough Collaborative, where you teach middle school students from lower income backgrounds over the summer. And my high school, Sidwell Friends School, actually hosted it. So a number of high school students, not just from Sidwell, but from around the country came and and taught the middle schoolers. And so from that experience, I knew that I enjoyed teaching and I knew that I enjoyed 
I think, giving back to my community. And so that was something important to me that I had some of that experience after college. And so Teach for America felt like the right fit. It was, I have to say, one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences I've ever had. Challenging because I did not have a background in education and there is just such a steep learning curve Mm -hmm. and kind of in parallel to learning how to be a teacher, you're learning how to be an adult who shows up for work every day before at 7.15, I think it was, and you have children who you are responsible for. It's a very adult job in general. It's a very adult job for somebody just out of college and then layer on top of that learning how to be a teacher. It was an incredible challenge. And where did you teach and what ages were your students? So I taught in Atlanta. So I stayed in Atlanta after going to Emory and I taught second grade for two years and then I looped with my class up to third grade. So I got to teach my second class for two full years, which was really nice. Well, and it's such an important observation that you just said because, so I don't think it's exactly the same. It's a different program, but my brother-in-law, whom I've mentioned before, he lives in New Orleans. And one of the things that got him down there was shortly after college, he enrolled in some sort of, it wasn't quite Teach for America, but it was similar. You're given tools, but in a lot of ways you're being thrown in. Like you said, you've never had like this sort of job before. They're giving you some training, but still you're not really starting as like a teacher with a decade of experience. And I just recall it being really hard for him just like emotionally very difficult. I would say that for six months to a year. He's now in the administration and I, you know, it's gone really well, but you're just reminding me of there was a time when we were all like, I don't know if Joe's going to be okay. Like that's really hard <laughs> what he's doing. And I imagine that you went through a similar adjustment period. Definitely. And it was a part of Atlanta that I had really never been to when I was at Emory. Cause I really didn't go, I went around campus, but not, didn't spend a lot of time like venturing out into the community in Atlanta. And so I had never kind of been in that environment before. I had, I'd grown up, I went to private school from pre-kindergarten through 12th grade. I literally had never been in a public school before. I had never really kind of embedded myself in a community where that was low income and where people had struggles that were much larger than the struggles that children might have in in a classroom. And so adjusting to that and really being present and being able to take it all in and still rise to the occasion to make sure that those students got the best education, not just an okay education from day one was an incredible challenge. When does law school come onto the scene? While you were teaching, had you started thinking about it or what what was that transition like? After my second year of teaching, I started feeling like this is an incredible challenge. Like I love my kids so much. You know, you come home, you like cry on the weekends because like you love them so much. You're working so hard. It's such an intense experience. But I was like, I think that this is not my permanent career. I think this is something that I'm doing now. I think I will always be passionate about and care about education, but I think that I'm ready to try something different. And so I decided, let me study for the LSAT. So through Teach for America, they had like an LSAT class that was very reduced cost. So I could afford it because at the time, you know, I was, I was working on a teacher's salary. So every 
week, you'd go and you'd do the class. And then every Saturday, I'd wake up in the morning, pour myself a cup of coffee, and take practice tests for like six or seven hours straight and just take them over and over again to try and get a good score and prepare myself for the LSAT. And then ended up taking the LSAT at Emory, back where I went to school. And I guess the rest is history. How did you just figure out where you were going to go for law school? So this is an interesting story. I decided that the three, I was only going to apply to three schools. I decided I was going to apply to Emory because I loved Atlanta and I could see myself staying there. My best friend and I actually bought a house together after our second year of teaching. And so I had this house. I was like, I could stay in Atlanta. Emory's a good school. So I applied there. And then I decided I'm going to apply to Georgetown because my parents are in D.C. My dad was at the time a visiting professor in the School of Foreign Service there. And so I was like, I'll get a discount on tuition and it's a very good school. I'm going to apply there. And then I said, you know, I'm just going to apply to Harvard because why not? Like it's one of the best law schools. And if I got in, I'd consider it. And so I just applied to those three schools and I was lucky enough to get into all three of them and decided to go to Harvard. I love that story too, though, because I can tell you're like, all right, here was my thinking. And there's part of you that's like, I don't know if that was super sound at the time, but here's what I did. (laughs) Obviously, it worked out quite well for you, but I don't know. We just have some similarities. But I had a similar train of thought for law school, which was for me, I was in D.C., went straight through. I felt like very displaced because while I was in college, my parents had moved away from Wisconsin where I grew up. So I was like, I need a home and I just don't want to move around a lot. So I'm either staying in DC. So that means Georgetown or school in DC. I'd really like to go back to the Midwest. Okay, I'll apply in Chicago because that's sort of home for me. It's not as Midwest as Wisconsin, but it's still Midwest. Then I was like, and I'll randomly apply to this school in Michigan because my then boyfriend, now husband. But it was one of those like, it's either here or it's a couple places that I know or this one other place. (laughs) And it wasn't this like, I'm scouring the country, I'm looking at every school. And I just think it's so important to explore that thought process, because whether it be making people that are in college or law students like, yeah, we're human too. Now you're a partner at Foley and Lardner, and people probably assume you're endowed with the knowledge of the universe. (laughs) But you're like, here was my process. Here's how it ended up. But anyway, how was that going to Harvard? What was law school like for you? You know, it was really interesting because like I just said, I came from this kind of this experience of doing Teach for America, of experiencing on a daily basis how difficult poverty is for people who are experiencing it and being in that environment and being in a completely pretty much black environment, right? Like it was one of the first times where I was in the majority. I had I think there were two white students in our whole school. The whole faculty pretty much was, I mean, it was a little bit more mixed, but almost all black. And then kind of bouncing back to an environment much more similar to the environment I grew up in, where it's, you know, a majority white institution, very highly regarded institution in Boston, where I had never been or lived before, and that had just an incredible amount of resources. And it was really a shock to the system, even though like that is kind of more how I had grown up in a lot of ways, to go back into that environment and to really compare and contrast. But that said, you know, I found law school to be challenging and interesting. I made some good friends there who I'm still in touch with and who I still cherish very much. And and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity. 
And at this point, we're closing in on 15 years ago that you started law school. Do you remember any specifics about that adjustment? And I only ask because if there were any tidbits that stood out to you that you think are worth passing on to someone else who's trying to adjust to law school, this is the time to highlight those. Well, I won't be too offended that you highlighted how long ago I started law school. But, you know, I would just say a lot of people say treat law school as a job. I think that that's good advice in the sense that, like, get up every morning, whether or not you have class, like, get started, do some stuff, make sure you're spending your time wisely. But more than that, I feel like I didn't take advantage enough of all of the programming and speakers and other things that Harvard had to offer, that is what really does or can differentiate a law school is all of those resources, all the people who want to come and talk to you or all of the things that the school plans for you. And looking back now, I'm like, I cannot believe that I did not spend every waking second doing something that I now don't have access to. (laughs) Don't either don't have access to or don't have time to. And that's such great advice, though, because you don't necessarily have that perspective. And yes, class and grades, they have to be your priority. We're not saying that you shouldn't do that. But it is a really unique time period in your life where you can, I don't know, be reading emails or see a flyer and you're like, oh, a Seventh Circuit judge is coming, you know, or whatever circuit it is for, for Cambridge. And you can just go in between class and listen to a judge speak. Yes. Sure. We can kind of seek those out now as lawyers, but it's not the same. It's just not the same. Exactly. And like, there should be the time, honestly, in law school. Like, there is a lot of studying to be done, and you have to take it seriously if you want to get the grades that you want and you want to go to the firm you or to the experience that you want to after law school. But with that said, there should be enough time for those other things that you want to do. And it is a great time to make the time for the things that you want to do. I love that you said that. And without coming across as a scary law firm lawyer, which technically I'm not because I don't practice, life will only get more complicated. And now don't get me wrong, there are people who have extenuating circumstances. And some have been on this podcast, you know, single parents during law school. But I think for the average law student, just like you said, you actually do have quite a bit of time, even after adequately devoting time to studying for class. That's a really, really, I think, important perspective to give someone. So fast forward for me a bit through law school. When does Foley and Lardner come on the scene? So my 1L year, there was the Balsa Job Fair in the fall. And at the Balsa Job Fair, I met Jim Bierman, who was then partner in charge of recruiting for Foley. And we started having a conversation and it just turned out that Jim's son had also gone to my high school. And so we had that in common. And, you know, I hadn't really known a lot about Foley or really anything about Foley before that initial meet, but, you know, it left an impression on me. And so I followed up with an email and applied for a 1L summer position. I applied here at Foley and at another firm and ended up getting an offer from Foley and accepting. Now, did you know that litigation was what you wanted to focus on while you were in in law school or did your summer associate opportunities help you solidify that? What was your thought process there? I did not know anything about being a law firm lawyer when <laughs> when I was a 1L summer. I literally don't, looking back now, I'm like, I don't know how I showed up in the right outfit, like at the right time, because as a 1L, you're not going through OCI. No one's coaching you through all the interactions that you're supposed to have and what's expected for you over the summer. And there's not like this 
dire need to get an offer at the end of the summer. So looking back, I honestly cannot tell you how I was successful that first summer. But that summer did introduce me to litigation. And so it made me pretty confident that that was what I wanted to pursue after graduation. The listeners are going to kill me because we keep having these moments where I'm like, Sarah, me too. (laughs) But as everyone knows, I think I, you know, I summered my 1L summer at Foley, but it was in Chicago and it would have been a couple of years before you did the same. And you're just bringing me back, just remembering what it was like to show up at a law firm. And yeah, you know, I muddled through what sort of clothes I should wear. But even back then was when I think Foley and a number of firms, you had to front your expenses for certain things. So even for the interview, I barely had a credit. Card. Like it was just a very different <laughs> time in my life. And I think that's a transition that almost every lawyer goes through, though. And hopefully they get more of a sense of what it's like to be a lawyer from this show. But I just, I love that you shared that because the mindset where you're like, what is even going on? I'm just going to show up here. They're going to tell me what to do and I'll do my best. All right. So, because we have, a, I mean, I think over about a decade or more to cover, and please don't get mad at me. I don't think these are negative things to highlight how long someone's been practicing, but we <laughs> will get up to you just bec- becoming partner. But I would love if you have reflections on the early part of your career. How did you learn to litigate and how did you end up focusing on what you focus on? Sure. So I think that I learned to litigate by watching the other litigators in my office and obviously by doing. But I think one of the things that I like the most about Foley is the fact that we staff our cases leanly. So even from the very beginning, I was often the only associate on a case with a partner and so or with a senior counsel. And so what that meant was I got to learn every phase of the litigation, be a part of every phase of the litigation be a part of the strategy, and get to attend everything. I have mentors in this office who I really do cherish and look up to so much. And I was able to see them in all of their different performances as attorneys and then take from them the best parts of what they do and kind of add them to my bag of tricks. And I think so much of being a lawyer is being able to do that, to see what other people do and what parts of that could work for you, and then incorporating them into your routine. You know, I forgot to ask you, why New York? How did you end up in the New York office? So for a personal reason, I was supposed to start in the DC office, but for personal reasons, wanted to move to New York and the firm allowed me to do that, which was really interesting because I had built up all this goodwill after two summers in the DC office, like people, not to speak too highly of myself, people loved me and they were excited for me to come back and start as an associate. And I was excited about that energy. Like I was like, yes, I've killed it. Like everybody's going to know, like as soon as I get there to give me work. And then all of a sudden I changed my plan and I came to New York and I, I knew nobody. And, you know, I interviewed with them to make sure that they actually wanted me to come you know, I knew nobody. And so it was also right after the 2008 downturn. So it was a time when work was hard to come by. It was not a time when you just get there and things are ready for you to do. Having to do that and having to make my way here and create my brand here when the other associate who started with me was a summer associate in this office was challenging, but I think also really helped me to like step up and stay focused. Once again, I'm nodding a lot. 
what you said and highlighted is also really important because I think it's something that when law students get the opportunity to be summer associates, they actually may miss. Now, this is going to depend on your firm. So what I say is not gospel, but really the point of you being a summer associate is to get to know people in that office. And like you said, you've been there for two summers. You knew everybody. They're excited to have you come back. But what I'll see sometimes is, and this is not to say your work doesn't matter. Your work does matter. Do good work. Learn your craft. But I'll actually, I've run into summers who forget about that social dynamic and really using this as an opportunity to get to know people because it's harder. As you just basically said, it's just harder to do that when you're also focusing on ramping up your client matters. And obviously you did it and you did it very well. But I think that's a really important story you told because I just think sometimes new lawyers will miss that context of understanding Get to know people while you're a summer. Back to what you said about law students. You have the time. <laughs> Do it. Oh, I'll just say, you know, to your point, Alexis, over the 10 years that I've been at Foley, like there have been people from the DC office who knew me from my summers who have referred me work because they remember me from now 12 years ago. So, you know, those kind of connections that you make, even if they, it takes five years for them it to play out, they will benefit you down the road and people will remember those relationships that they have with you. Absolutely. Well, now I'd like to take you back. It's just sort of where we started. You told us about your practice, but I'd love for you to tell us about it again and your particular expertise and what exactly does a, a client call Sarah Madavo for? Well, like I said, I think a client calls Sarah Madavo for help in New York courts. A lot of the matters I work on, I am a member of the labor and employment practice group as well as the healthcare industry team. I've worked on a lot of matters that involve both payer and provider health, both healthcare payers and providers, as well as employment law issues. But I am more of a generalist probably than a, a lot of other people at the firm. But that really does work for me simply because in New York, there are clients we have, global clients, national clients who need services in New York. And so I'm able to provide them with those services. All right. Now I'm going to ask the question that I think law students try to ask, but maybe don't always get the answer they're hoping for. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> but how would you describe your day-to-day? -day? And I'm sure law students have asked you this before. What does your day-to-day -day look like? What are you working on? But what are the things that a litigation attorney is doing? What's it look like day to day in your office? I, and I suspect I know what your answer is going to be because I've, I've lived this life. But please elaborate. Sure. So another thing that I like about Foley is it's not really a firm where you just work on one matter at a time. I don't think there's ever been a time in my Foley career where I was working on less than five or six matters. You know, so depending on the day, I may touch all of those matters or one or two of those matters, but I'm obviously responding to emails, talking to the client, reading through pleadings, reading through briefs, coming up with strategy for what we're going to do next or, you know, how we're going to respond to discovery. So I guess a variety of things. Then there's days where I'm in depositions or there's days when I'm arguing a motion or at a court conference. It just really depends. It absolutely does. And law students are going to ask it and they should, but I enjoy asking it because I know the answer is like, ah, it. there's no same day to day. I write sometimes, I speak sometimes, I talk to clients sometimes. <laughs> it just, it goes on and on. Well, and as I also said when we started, we are thrilled at Foley because you are a part of our new partner class. 
And as you've already mentioned a few times for the different things, but you're a woman of color, you're a black woman in large law firms. You're also co-chair of uh, Foley's Black Attorney Affinity Group. And we are recording this now in early February, 2021 for anyone who's, who's wondering, but I recently looked at the NALP stats for people of color in large law firms and particularly Black lawyers in large law firms, even more particularly Black women lawyers. And we know, all of us know the stats aren't great. And so I don't know if you have any general reflections or even if it's frankly fair to ask for you to reflect on what it's been like being supported by the firm on your journey to partnership or just thoughts you've had on navigating you know, large law firms and just the legal industry as a woman of color. Sorry, enormous question, Sarah. I don't know. Say whatever <laughs> comes to mind. <laughs> Alexis, again, I'm, I'm trying to work with you here. I know, I'm like, <laughs> here's a huge question that's not specific at all. Give me your thoughts. <laughs> well, I'll say this, you know, I think, and this is gonna kind of be a, an answer that wanders a little bit, but I believe that that every firm is not for everyone, but there is a firm for almost everyone. And I was very lucky early on to find Foley as the firm that was right for me. When I decided to come back after my 1L summer, you know, I did OCI. I had offers from other big name firms. I came back because I thought that the people here would mentor me and genuinely cared about my success as associate and as a person. And so for me, that was what I was looking for. And I felt like Foley was the right fit. And I say that because I think that so much of our success as Black women, but just in general, as as anybody, depends on having the people around you who will mentor you and support you and care about you. And so like, I've been very lucky to have that, you know, here in the New York office, I've had Doug Heffern and Seckel who have kind of just really held my hand every step of the way. On a larger scale, Jean Gills on the management committee has been really a mentor and a friend for my whole journey. And so, you know, those people have really helped me to get along with many others. So I, I don't have time to name all of them, but they have all contributed and helped me to be able to do what I've done. And so when I reflect as a Black woman, I think about those things and I hope for other people who are kind of like me in law school, thinking about what they want to do, that they really do consider fit and, and where they fit and where they want to be and finding an environment where people have a similar vision of them as they have of themselves, that people believe in them, that people cherish them, and that people are willing to do what it takes to help them get to where they want to go. Everything you said is so powerful. A couple of things come to mind. One, I'm working to get John Gills on the podcast. <laughs> John I was wondering is, where she is on the line. I'm working. I'm working. Because John, just for listeners, she's the vice chair of our IP department, also a black woman lawyer, and she's a member of our management committee. And John is always about passing the mic. She's like, no, 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 like feature other people, but one day I'll get her on. But also something you said to state it more affirmatively, because as you can imagine, I'm asked frequently by law students, how can I figure out if her firm values diversity and inclusion. And what I'll do is I'll tell them, stop trying to read the tea leaves of the law firm websites that may or may not be even up to date. But what you're actually trying to figure out is if this organization truly values people. Because diversity and inclusion is about people. It's about how we resonate with all people. But even getting more specifically, what you're trying to figure out is the culture of the firm 
And even more specifically, the feedback culture of the firm, because something that's so important to your development as an attorney is like you just said, Sarah, having people who truly value you or champion you, but also who are going to tell you what you need to know so that you can develop as an attorney. And that is very hard to glean from a 20-minute OCI interview. You are not going to glean it from the website either. And you're going to start feeling it when you're actually meeting with and interviewing with the firm. And it's not going to be perfect. Your radar for that is not going to be perfect. And so what you just said, I think, just so exemplifies that. And it's hard. By the way, this is not easy. And I think a lot of us carry guilt for not understanding everything about an organization from their website. Or you might be able to just listen to their podcast, past practice, <laughs> find out a little bit more about the kinds of people that work there. <laughs> exactly. Just something that is unique to our firm is you have this window. And it's so funny because whenever I talk about this podcast, I always feel like a salesman as if I get like paid per downloads. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's important to be proud of something that you, right. you gave birth to. There you go. And I assure you, I do not. But like you said, it is really powerful because, you know, we are now a firm where if you want to hear at this point, I think you're going to be episode 36, Sarah. It's probably close to 30 hours of Foley attorneys talking. And if you want to get a sense of who Foley is, this is just as good as a way to do that as any. But I just can't stress enough what you said about people who are going to value you and train you. Like bottom line, I think that's what you said. Yes. And I'll say two more things on that. One is I don't want to gloss over the fact that the people that I mentioned and other people here have given me kind of the harsher or necessary kind of sit downs along the way. Everything is not going to be perfect. It's not going to be easy. And the hardest part about it being a lawyer is being able to bounce back when you're down. And it will happen with you. It will happen in your cases with what happens for your clients. And you have to, instead of feeling beaten down, be able to say, okay, I hear you. I understand. It won't happen again and then come up with the fix or the way that you're not going to let it happen again. Um, And, you know, so you have to have the people who are going to tell you the truth, but then they're also going to help you when you're saying, I'm ready to fix it. Can we do this together? And then the second thing is, you know, I think Foley is, like you said, I'm a person who I really value that kind of community. And when I made partner that night, I got an email from Jim Bierman, even though he's a retired partner, saying to me how much better the partnership is because I'm a part of it. And, you know, I love that. Like, that is exactly why I came to Foley. And it is the reward that I was seeking. So I really, I like it here. Well, that's so heartwarming. And I haven't had occasion to interact with a lot of our retired partners, but I do know they're watching us. They're watching the firm and they pay attention. It's not a firm they leave lightly. Like they want to know what's going on, which I think says a lot, but also, and I can't help it. I just have to pound some of these points home. But what you said about this isn't easy. It's not. I mean, and this is like the kind of joke of like, they call it a practice for a reason, but they really do. It's This is not a profession where you're like, you know, given your skill set on day one, and you're just going to like press a button all day. And I know how to do it. I know to be perfect. No, you are developing. And like you said, there will be hard times. You will be told that something wasn't awesome. And I actually think a mark of those who thrive in the profession are those who are able to take that feedback for what it is and not armor up and not be mad that everyone isn't just constantly telling them they're awesome. And even though it's so hard to hear, but to truly value it, you know, probably do a gut check. Maybe it is hard to hear, you know, tears happen at work. But to understand that that person who told you that it actually was that it was a kindness Absolutely. for them, 
to tell you. I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. She talks about how clear is kind, unclear is unkind. And I actually think in large law firms as an industry, we're notorious for unkind. What you'll get is that like, what will happen, you know, just candidly, what can happen in some firms is something didn't go well, the partner didn't like the work product, and they just don't ask you to work for them anymore. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. But so for them to actually say like, hey, this was really difficult or like, here's where you could have improved or like, oh my God, this ha like you have to understand that they're being actually being really kind when they do that. Those are like some big things, <laughs> some big, these are some key mentoring moments here on the path. <laughs> <laughs> but as we wind, wind down, Sarah, I'll ask you a couple of my final questions. You know, the first one was, is there anything else you wanted to highlight about, you know, your, your path or things you wanted to talk about? And then, of course, after that, it's what's your general advice? What are your takeaways and insights you'd like to share with somebody contemplating or navigating a legal career? Sure. I, so I think it kind of will go full circle and go back to this whole idea of how my attitude towards college. I think you really have to think about who you are. What, be honest with yourself about who you are, about what you like, about what you want as you're looking towards figuring out what you want to do and where you want to do it. You know, there may be people in your ear who are talking to you about prestige. There may be people in your ear talking to you about a specific specialty. There may be people in your ear talking to you about like doing the right thing for the community. All of those things can be great things, but they're only great things if they're great things to you. And so staying true to yourself through this process and really, I think that's a big part of being an adult is just figuring out what works for you and then doing it. So my advice would just be to find that right fit after a lot of self-reflection and then be present and enjoy your time doing whatever you're doing. You know, don't keep looking back over your shoulder at things you chose not to do, but, you know, look forward to all of the things that you have that will come to you through your good decision-making. That is fantastic advice. It is fantastic advice on a legal career, fantastic life advice. You know, and with that, Sarah, I will ask if people have questions they want to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and email you? Absolutely. Feel free to email me or call me. I'm, I'm happy to email or chat anytime. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 